Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, Do All Dead Men Stay Dead? Join us as Ken discusses humanity's ultimate hope. Uh, Ken, uh, by that teaser line, uh, I know I'm interested in this topic, and I suppose a lot of people are because, you know, we are going to think about death at some point, but uh, you've got a a way of uh, arranging the material here so that there's going to be some hope. Yes, uh, I think that, uh, you know, right at the heart of the Christian faith is, of course, the person of Jesus his life, death, and then ultimately his resurrection. The resurrection is, of course, what uh, guarantees our hope. And mm-hmm. what, I'd, what I'd like to do in today's program is to talk about the resurrection, but I really want to lay a context for the secular worldview of naturalism and, and how it views the, the outcome of humanity. So I'm hoping this will give the resurrection uh, maybe a, a, a new application. Yeah, so there's Easter hope uh, year-round, and we're going to explore what that hope is. That's, All right. That's right. Well, in, 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 looking at, uh, in looking at the idea of uh, resurrection, I, I think, again, to a quotation uh, from St. Augustine in his uh, book, Confessions, Uh, I think, Joe and Dave, that Augustine was every bit as good a writer as C.S. Lewis, which is uh, a compliment because I think Lewis was a great writer. But Augustine had a way of kind of using words. And uh, here is here's a quote uh, from book one. He says, I was born into this life which leads to death. Or should I say this death which leads to life? And of course, he, he likes to kind of flip ideas back and forth. So was I born into this life that is inevitably going to end in my death where lights are out, I'll, I'll no longer exist, uh, no life after death? Is, is that what I should expect? Or was I born into a death, meaning that I'm born into a fallen world with a fallen nature, but ultimately through Christ, it's going to lead to life. Uh, I, I like the way Augustine kind of uh, positions those two perspectives, and it, and it all depends on your point of view, right? I'm born into this, this death, uh, which will lead to life, or am I born into this life, which is ultimately end in death? Well, I've always been interested. I, I think uh, most of my adult life, I've been interested in the question of death. And uh, I think for, for a variety of reasons, I, I always hoped that if I could kind of look death in the eye, then I might get over my fear of death. And death always seemed mysterious to me. And I thought maybe if I can learn more about it, maybe I, maybe I can look it in the eye, I can uh, walk away with, with a sense of courage. So a number of years ago, I got a chance to teach a class on thanatology uh, thanatos is the Greek word for death. So this this course was Thanatology, the study of death and dying. And the textbook I used uh, by Strickland and Despelder, the title of the book was The Last Dance, uh, which is a metaphor for death, right? This is, this is your last dance, or as 
I tell my my wife when we have these little talks about uh, our life, I say, we're in the fourth quarter now, right? You look at your life and you start dividing it up. Well, we're in our 60s, so we're in a fourth quarter. Uh, Dave, you might be in overtime. I, I don't know. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> oh, boy. That's what I feel like. <laughs> but, but who knows? Who I, knows? I, I told my dad after he turned 70, I said, it. Everything from now on is just grace because God only promises this force, you know, what three score and 10. That's right. It's gravy, man. It's gravy, mm. right? Well, in this interesting book, in, again, entitled The Last Dance by Dispelder and Strickland, uh, it says that uh, the data reveals that there are people who think if I don't think about death, if I don't acknowledge it, if I just ignore it, maybe it won't happen to me. Now, now that is the very definition of wishful thinking, right? Uh, also, teaching this class for five years out at the College of the Desert, it was very difficult to get college students to think that someday they might die until I gave them the final exam. And that, uh, <laughs> that gave them a it's little piece. I guess that was judgment day, right? Mm. Well, it, it's interesting. Uh, and, and, you know, I've talked to a lot of Christian people and I've asked them, you know, how often do you think about death? And uh, a lot of them say, I don't think about it much at all. So, you know, th this issue of death is, is kind of mysterious to us. Now, if I could move forward a, a number of years, uh, Google had a uh, uh, Time magazine had a cover. Uh, and the title was, Can Google Solve Death? Of course, this is the idea that uh, there are people associated with, with Google. The, the, one of the major engineers there in technology is a man named Ray Kurzweil. And of course, this is part of the transhumanism you know, idea that maybe there will be an advance in technology by 2050 where it's possible uh, they'll eliminate death uh, or there may be new opportunities to, to at least expand, uh, you know, the, the lifespan of people. And so let me give you a little bit of background on uh, transhumanism. Uh, Fuzz Rana and I put a book together entitled, uh, hum, hum, what is it? Humans 2.0. Humans 2.0. And uh, Fuzz spent a lot of time looking at the science and technology I kind of responded with theology and uh, ethics. And so here is a little summary of transhumanism uh, from their website, transhumanism.org. You can go on there. Well, here's how I would characterize their, their approach. They have great confidence in human reason and science. So 2015, maybe they'll be able to take the consciousness out of your brain and uh, put it on a computer. Uh, or maybe, uh, as one website says, 90 will be the new 50, right? Mm -hmm. By 2050, 90 will become the new 50. Uh, so maybe the life, ex you can expand lifespans. I would also say that there's an extreme optimism that merging technologies will expand consciousness and possibly even eliminate death. Now, if Google can eliminate death, I'll move from Yahoo over to Google. I, I think if they can do that, of course, I'm teasing. Um, 
I don't think anybody's going to eliminate death. Uh, but uh, Fazrana argues in our book that there are studies that seem to indicate it is possible uh, to maybe advance the human lifespan. Uh, again, maybe gradually or maybe in small amounts, but even there, you know, that's significant. I always point out that in, if you were born in 1900 uh, in North America and you happen to be a white man, your life expectancy was 47 years. Hmm. If you're born today and you're a woman, and let's say you're born into a Seventh-day Adventist family that emphasizes health, uh, good eating, exercising, etc. You might double the forty-seven. So we have seen, you know, by getting rid of trash, by uh, you know, various ways of of uh, making people healthy. Maybe there is a, a development of uh, lifespan. I would also say that transhumanism reflects a naturalistic worldview that places human beings at the moral center of the cosmos. Now, there are Christian transhumanists, but transhumanism as a whole is, is very secular in its orientation. Now, let me give you a contrast. Uh, my mentor in the Christian faith uh, was Walter Martin. Walter was the first Bible teacher that I had. Uh, Walter was the first boss I had uh, in doing apologetics professionally, and Martin had a had a big influence. I, I, I'm sure when I was in my early 20s, I would have asked, what would Walter Martin do? Uh, he had that kind of influence on me, and Walter was always known for these, uh, these funny and, and provocative lines. He, he once said, the real death rate is one per person, one per person. I, I think that's more realistic. Uh, the reality is that, that all of us are going to die. If the Lord doesn't return in our lifetime, uh, all of us are going to die. And I think thinking about death uh, can help us to maybe develop character that we can face it with courage. Um, and we can, we can talk about how meaningful should our life be. You know, if, if life is short, and it is. I mean, even if you live 70, 80, 90 years, uh, it goes by so quickly. Uh, in my own experience, it seemed like it took forever to become 18. But the second and third 18 have gone by seemingly a lot faster. Mm. And uh, so maybe thinking about death, we can learn something significant about our life. Mm. Now, uh, in light of that kind of optimistic uh, humanism, that optimistic naturalism. And, and again, I think one of the reasons why transhumanism has become popular is that um, naturalism needs an eschatology. Naturalism needs a hope. Uh, I think if you look at naturalism very carefully, it offers no hope. So I can see why a naturalist would say, hey, what if we could use science and technology to live longer? Or what if we could even get rid of death? Uh, and I think this illustrates that people can't live without hope. They, they need a future. They need something that they can look forward to. But if there's no God, and we're the product of, of evolution, uh, so the optimistic 
uh, naturalists, the transhumanists, I think they're illustrating that, that everybody needs an eschatology, everybody needs a hope. But in light of that optimistic naturalism, I want to give you some old school naturalism. And here I want to introduce you to a couple of the old atheists. I've, in my book, uh, Christianity Cross-Examined, I compare the new atheists with the old atheists. And I often say that I think the old atheists are more formidable. And I, I think the reason they're more formidable is one, they knew a lot about Christianity. They were, they were forced to study it. They grew, they were living uh, and teaching and being educated at a time in which Christianity was the dominant worldview. So they, they had an influence. Uh, they were influenced by Christianity. And because they knew it well, they could kind of find the soft underbelly, if you will. In fact, let me introduce you to two atheists, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, who lives in the 19th century, um, and Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existential atheist philosopher. He lives in the 20th century. Uh, Nietzsche's father was a Lutheran minister. And uh, Nietzsche used to say that, uh, you know, he will always remember the first time he heard Handel's Messiah. And Nietzsche would like to, he liked to needle Christians. One time he said, you know, I might believe in your redeemer if you, if you followers of him would act more redeemed. See, Nietzsche understood Christianity. Nietzsche understood that the soft underbelly of Christianity is Christians. They're, they're the vulnerable ones. They're the ones that uh, represent Christianity and it can be for good or it can be for bad. Now, now Sartre comes out of the Second World War. By, by the way, Sartre was very brave in World War II. He worked in the French underground to undermine the Nazis. Uh, but remember after World War II, uh, Europe is destroyed. Uh, you know, the major countries are, are in rubble. Their economy is shot. Uh, they've got millions of dead people. And uh, so Nietzsche comes out of that and he says, uh, excuse me, Sartre comes out of that and he says, wow, um, humanism is dead. Secularism is dead. Theism is dead. So where can we find meaning? Well, the only way you can find meaning is by creating it for yourself. You have to do what God can't do because God doesn't exist. Hmm. So this is that kind of old school uh, naturalism. And, and what does old school naturalism say? They say that life is a fortunate accident. It emerged merely from physics and chemistry. That's it. Humankind evolved from the lower primates. And now human beings stand at the top of the evolutionary ladder. And the forces of naturalistic evolution have pr produced, amazingly, a creature that is capable of reflection. This morning, as I was driving into work, I was listening to Mortimer J. Adler in his book, How to Speak, How to Listen. He was talking about uh, human exceptionalism, that our ability uh, to speak, our ability to read, uh, to have conversations, uh, our, our, uh, our language capacity is one of the things that makes us different than two other uh, creatures 
it makes us different than the animals and it makes us different than machines. And, uh, you know, human beings evolved from uh, lower life. We all have some ape-like ancestor according to the naturalistic, you know, a Darwinian model. Uh, but now we're at a place where we can actually begin to reflect a, a, about the world. And what do human beings do? Because now they can, they are different than the apes. Uh, they, they can do philosophy, they can reflect. Uh, as that human person reflects, the naked ape, as he is called, uh, human beings now realize the fragility and brevity of life and the unequivocal existential dilemma. And I, and I like to say that people often use that word in existential crisis or an existential dilemma. Well, I would say the real existential dilemma for a human being is death. Why? Because from a naturalist point of view, the, the death, the grave is the final end of each person's collective life, existence, and consciousness. Uh, you know, you can talk about other existential crises, but the crisis for every person, if you're a naturalist, is uh, the end, you know, the, there'll be an off switch and everything will be, will be black. So let me, let me give you a, a perspective on this. If you, uh, if you hold a naturalist worldview, uh, you're going to die. Uh, and what is death? It's to never think again. It's to never experience again, never love again. Only oblivion waits, nothing more. I mean, that, this is a pretty stark worldview, which makes me think... I'm speculating a little bit here, which makes me think that maybe atheistic naturalism is largely a young person's philosophy. Uh, now, that's not completely true. There, there are older people who embrace atheism, who embrace naturalism. But I think once you get older, you begin to realize, wow, I don't see as well as I once did. I can't move like I once did. Uh, my mind uh, leaks, as, as Dave reminds me, uh, you know, uh, I, I see my body breaking down. I see the qualities and characteristics that, that were so strong in my youth, they're waning. Well, this, this is a very pessimistic worldview. It's, it's, it's a difficult worldview. So let me give you the predicament, and then we'll pause a little bit, maybe uh, chat about any questions you have, Joe or Dave. But here is what I think the naturalist faces. He, he or she faces what I call a fourfold existential predicament. So existential has to do with existence. It has to do with being. It has to do with what is a human being? Where is the importance of, of humanity? That's, that's the word, to exist. And for the atheist existentialist, you just exist. You don't have any nature. You don't, you're not made in the image of God. You just exist. Now, what, what's going to happen to you? Well, I, I like to say the fourfold existential predicament can be stated in four statements. One, I will die. Two, I will die soon. Three, I will die alone. And four, I'll remain dead forever. Now, that's, 
that's the that's the hand you're dealt. Hmm. You're going to die, and it's going and it's going to be soon, uh, because again, even if it's a couple decades away, you know, think back to uh, ten years ago, uh, twenty years ago, how quickly it came, and you're going to have to die alone, and you're going to be dead forever. Um, I remember Martin Luther saying, there's two things that human beings have to do all by themselves. You have to do your own believing and you have to do your own dying. Hmm. Be nice to, you know, hey, could you die for me? You know, can you can you take that away? Well, I'll have more to say about that when we talk about Christianity and the resurrection, because uh, in a sense, Christ died for us. But this is a this is a pretty stark uh philosophy not a lot of hope here so let me pause joe and dave jump in yeah i um there seems like there's one other aspect here in uh, i mean you haven't mentioned it yet but the things that frighten a person about death is tied up in these four things that you mentioned here and uh you have in the past at least uh spoken of it as something that would frighten a person. But in my encounters with some atheists, I think the thing that frightens them is that death may not be the end of everything hmm. and that they're going to be held accountable. They're going to, there's, there's going to be a judgment. And I think this causes fear. And they like the idea of going into oblivion because then they don't have to be dealing with any of the things that uh, they've been maybe convicted of. One of the core statements of scripture in John, it says that the purpose of the spirit or the goal of the spirit is to convict the world of uh, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And uh, I think some atheists who are willing to think about it have that fear well, you know, let's. Uh, the Bible says it's appointed unto man to die once, and then the judgment. Think about that scenario, though. I, I think you're right, Dave. I, I, I will sometimes say that. You know, I spend time on social media, and I remember one day it was a Thanksgiving morning. I engaged with an atheist for about two hours, and. I said, you know, here it is Thanksgiving Day, and you're talking to me about a God you, you're certain doesn't exist. I mean, what are you getting out of this? Why You could be out having fun, could be eating turkey. Uh, you could, you know, spend time with your family. Why, why are you talking to me on social media about a God that you tell me you're convinced does not exist? I, Dave, I wonder if things like hell, is not a a way that God uses to tether people to himself uh, that they can't get out of their mind that you know when when I check out I might be wrong and I might face the judgment of God now let's look at those both there for a moment I mean if you die you might face the wrath of God a holy being for all of your sinful activity in life or if you're right, you never see, hear, smell, taste, touch again. I mean, I mean, think of that. That's a pretty tough uh, 
future to face. Either if there is a God, I'm going to be judged by him. Or if I'm right, I escape that, but I still go into oblivion. Mm-hmm. I, I, can't, I can't see again. I can't love again. That, that's, that's pretty, I guess you could also be reincarnated. That, that would be an Eastern mystical thing. But of course, when you come back, you don't remember your life. I don't know how you repent of your karmic deeds if you can't remember. But that that's a pretty difficult scenario to face. Joe, any thoughts? Uh, yeah, uh, a question. Um, when it comes to the worldview of the atheist, uh, it seems to me that they must uh, pursue whatever it takes to extend human life. That's And maybe that's why we have uh, transhumanism and our post-human future. It's a type of salvation. There's no God in their mind. So we've got, it's our responsibility to do this for humanity. So because we are at the top of the evolutionary chain, we have minds, we have brains. So let's do what we can to uh, keep the species going. I think that's exactly right. I, uh, and again, I would underscore that I don't think human beings, I, I think human beings are constructed in a particular way, either, either through evolution or, or the way God made us. I think we need a, we need a hope. We need future. Um, you know, you can only live so long without, uh, without food. You can live a lot lesser period without water. Uh, oxygen is a maximum requirement. You know, you, you don't go very long at all um, without being able to breathe oxygen. You're you're gonna gonna suffer brain death. But I would also say there is an existential need. I mean, how many people commit suicide, and 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 not merely because of mental illness. Uh, remember, mental illness is is negatively affected when somebody says, "Wow, I." I don't have anybody to help me solve my problems. I, I don't have real love in my life. Um, you know, there were more people committing suicide in Japan than were dying of COVID mm-hmm. sometime last year. I mean, these and and Joe, your your point too that, you know, uh, Fuzz asked me to write a chapter on, you know, the top ten transhumanists in the world. So I did. And I, you know, I did some research onto these secular transhumanists, many of them scientists, philosophers, educators, you know, some of them at Oxford University, some at Ivy League schools in America. What I came to was these people are committed. And it's so much so that I even asked myself, can am I as committed to the Christian worldview as these secularists are to transhumanism? But, but of course, it's the only game in town. Yeah. Now, let's, uh, Dave touched upon it here. Let me, let me bring in a, a, a philosopher, a uh, gentleman that I know that teaches at, at Claremont College, which is just down the freeway from, uh, from Reasons to Believe. Uh, his name is Stephen T. Davis. Some of our listeners will be familiar with that name. Uh, Davis is a, is a major academic philosopher. He is a Christian. 
he's written pretty extensively about, uh, about the resurrection. But this is what Davis says. He says, human beings are the only animals who know that they must die, and thus the only animals who try to hide from themselves the fact that they must die. Hmm. Now, that, that, that sets us in a very different category. You know, we, I have two dogs at home. We have a cat. Uh, I've, my wife and I have had animals our whole life. Um, our, you know, our dogs and cat, they're kind of like our kids or our grandkids. You know, we, we love them. We, we look at them in an anthropomorphic type of way. Um, but animals are very different. Human beings, either through evolution or were created in a particular way that, that we can ask the big questions of life, like, what will happen to me when I die? What will happen to my loved ones if I die? Now, Davis, in his book, and I should give you the title of the book, it's entitled Risen Indeed, Making Sense of the Resurrection, published by Erdman's in, in um, 1993, a very fine book. Davis is a rigorous philosopher. I've seen him take on many skeptical thinkers about the resurrection and, and uh, very skilled in his ability to uh, present the Christian worldview and defend the resurrection. But Davis in his book gives six reasons for man's fear of death. Now, at this point, Dave, we're going we're gonna to set aside the, the question of divine judgment. But from a naturalist point of view, if naturalism is true, if atheism is true, there's no God, the universe, the physical universe is all there is. Davis says there are six things that people fear. One, that death is inevitable. Can't stop it. It's, it's not if, it's when. Two, death is mysterious. It is mysterious. You'd like to learn more, but uh, the people on the other side aren't speaking and, unless you go to a seance or something like that. Then you may not be talking to the person you think you're talking to. Um, death is mysterious. Three, death must be faced alone. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a tough thing in life. Um, you, can be, you can be surrounded by a crowd, but still feel very alone. Well, death, you have to do by yourself. You have to face it alone. Four, death separates us from our loved ones. Five, death puts an end to our hopes and our aims. Six, death ends in oblivion. Now, again, if we separate the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview that says there's creation, fall, redemption, then consummation, there's the intermediate state where we're separated from our body, we're with God, we await, we wait the, the resurrected body, you know, there's the eternal state. Well, if we, we don't have any of that available to us from a naturalist point of view. So here are six things that they that human beings fear. Now um, I want to extend it, Dave. Here I want to I want to extend it in terms of what's going to happen in terms of physics. Uh, and here's how I see the inevitable outcome according to a naturalist worldview: that the individual person dies, humanity collectively goes extinct. Um, is, is, is transhumanism a viable option? Well, uh, you'll have to read our book and, and give it some thought. I, I tend to be skeptical 
I think Fuzz is a bit more, he thinks technology may be able to uh, do extraordinary things, but so the individual dies, humanity goes extinct, all life on earth goes extinct, earth, its solar system, the Milky Way galaxy literally comes apart. Dave, if I'm correct, the Milky Way galaxy is on a, a conflict course with the Andromeda galaxy. Right. So pretty, pretty pessimistic there. And and so the, finally, the entire grand cosmos itself, I mean, how large is it? Dave, how many galaxies? There's trillions of galaxies out there. Trillions of galaxies. So the grand cosmos itself inevitably grows lifeless and cold to the universal heat death. And so one way I like to talk about worldviews is who has the last say? When, when the curtain closes, who has the last say? I think in naturalism, entropy has to have the last say. Everything's going to go grow cold. And you know what? There isn't anything you can do to stop it. That's, that's, a, that's a very difficult worldview to think through. Now, Again, Dave, I think you're right. I, I think there's a lot going on in the minds and hearts and souls of people. And, you know, Christianity and its worldview has been spread far and wide. Lots of people in, in North America, in Europe, in the Western world have been influenced by Christianity. And so a lot of people have questions. Hey, maybe Maybe I will survive the death of my body. Maybe I'll have to stand before God and in judgment. Um, but maybe that's the way God intends it. I mean, I mean, maybe hell is so terrible because there is another purpose behind it, not just its reality, but that that thought that wow, I not only will have to stand before the God of the universe, but He's going to punish me. I mean, maybe maybe God uses that as a, you know, I, you know, here is another analogy of that. I think God uses suffering to keep us close to him. I think if God gave us an easy life, we would quickly begin to think that we're autonomous. We're the master of our own faith. We don't need him. I don't need church. I don't need to study the Bible. I don't need to commit myself. I'm doing fine. I'm making lots of money. I'm having a lot of fun. But then suffering turns your life upside down. You realize, wow, one visit to the doctor. Wow, uh, I'm not, I'm not the master of my own fate. It could all, it could all go down quickly. Uh, maybe God uses hell that way. Maybe the Bible describes it the way it is. Maybe because that really is the way it is. But it may also have a force where uh, maybe a person doesn't want to listen to reason and argument, but there is that pit in the stomach that says, well, what if I had to give an account before God? My, uh, my friend, or at least one of my friends, an atheist, he thinks that telling people about hell and and offering salvation as a remedy for not going to hell is child abuse. 
And so people have been manipulated. They have, uh, they have, uh, it's like being in a cult where you are, you know, your, your emotions and your thinking are warped is really what he's saying. Of course, on the other hand, um, again, I, I'd like to come back to that idea and I, I'm not trying to, uh, psychoanalyze the non-Christian, although I can't help because the Bible gives me inside baseball. It tells me that the natural tendency on the part of the non-believer is to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The Bible tells me that everybody knows there's a God. I think they know and they don't know. They know, but sin blinds them, and they act as if they can resist them. In fact, I think I think a person's situation without God is like a tug of war. You want God, you need God, you have to have God, but you you adamantly resist him at all at the same time. Mm. C.S. Lewis said, you know, as an atheist, I was steeped in contradictions. I was mad at God for not existing. Mm. And I was mad that he allowed a world war that I had to fight in. And yet he said, I believed he didn't exist. Well, what, what's going on? So human beings may not be as rational as, you know, as we think. Mm -hmm. Well, can I, can I now look at the Christian perspective and the resurrection? You guys want to say anything more about naturalism? Move ahead. All right. Now, one thing New Testament scholars have discovered about over the last 50 years or so, is that there appears to be creedal statements, sometimes even hymns. These are primitive creedal statements, primitive hymns. I use the word primitive because they come from the very earliest point of Christianity, meaning that the earliest point is when there were only Jewish Christians. There were, there were no Gentiles. Or very few. So these go back to the early, earliest period of Christianity. Some of them right back to almost to the to the resurrection itself. Now these creeds and hymns, they're weaved into the New Testament, particularly by two of the apostles, Paul in his writings and Peter in his writings. And what's interesting about these creedal statements and hymns is these were statements that were recited or sung in the primitive church. So they appear in various places. Uh, Paul has some in Romans. He has some in 1 Corinthians. There's some in 1 and 2 Peter. Uh, Paul has the hymn in Philippians 2. But, but here's the thing to think about. These creeds and hymns, they're a lot older than the books in which they appear. You know, maybe Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in AD 55, but the creed goes back to the early 30s. Hmm. And what's interesting about these creeds, by the way, and the hymn in Philippians 2, is not only do they predate the date of the books that were written, uh, but they have a very high Christology. Think of that 
think of Philippians 2, which is, again, understood to be an early Christian hymn. Uh, you know, Jesus didn't hold on to his, his prized position in heaven, but became nothing. Being in the very nature of God, you know, he became a slave. So this has real apologetic emphasis for a couple of reasons. One, it tells us what the earliest Christians believed because it's what they sang and it's what they recited. The early church is a confessional church. That's where you get a liturgy. You're confessing your faith. Well, it tells us what they believed. Uh, they had a high view of Christology. And what's really cool about that is I think it I think it really goes against the challenge that is made to Christianity. Uh, people like Bart Ehrman, the New Testament scholar who was once a Christian but uh, deconverted, is now a skeptic or an atheist. Uh, Bart Ehrman argues that uh, Jesus was deified. He was really only a human being. But through a couple centuries, the church just kind of deified him. But that goes against these creeds and hymns because they illustrate that the, the primitive church at the beginning had a very high Christology. They viewed Jesus as God, God in human flesh. Now, here's one of those creeds, 1 Corinthians 15, which, of course, is the chapter where Paul talks about the resurrection. But there is what we call a fourfold formula a primitive Christian kerygma. The word kerygma means proclamation. So this is the proclamation of Christianity. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, makes four points. Christ died. Died a public death. Executed by the Romans under the authority of Pontius Pilate. In the Apostles' Creed, there's only two people mentioned in the Creed other than the Father, Son, and Spirit. One of them is Pontius Pilate. Christ was put to death by the, these worldly power, the Romans. Um, and the other person that's mentioned is the Virgin Mary. He's born into the world. He lived in time and space. You know, there's a lot you get in the creed. It's The Apostles' Creed's only about 110 words. But boy, it's, it's a remarkable statement of faith. Um, Many Christian denominations recite it weekly. Uh, even the Southern Baptists are reciting it. Uh, I even see sometimes non-denominational churches recite it. And again, that takes us back to early Christianity, a confessional. You know, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Well, here is uh, the four-point kerygma. One, Christ died. He was buried. He was put into a tomb. Happened to be Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Difficult to think the apostles could have went to the wrong tomb when the tomb was owned by somebody who could have pointed that out. One, Christ died. He was buried, put into a tomb. Three, he was, he, he was raised. Not all dead men stay dead. Four, he appeared. Well, if you're going to... if if the resurrection was a hoax, you'd need to explain, one, what happened to the body? Second, who's this person appearing to the apostles? And, and by the way, even the Jesus Seminar, this would be a group of skeptical scholars, 
uh, agnostics, atheists, even they acknowledge that the early Christians really believed not only that the, the body was missing, but that they were having some kind of experiences. They were seeing something. Now, was it a delusion? Uh, well, we can, we can talk a bit more about that. But now let me lay aside this existential comparison. Uh, on naturalism, you have four points. Remember them. I will die. I'll die soon. I'll die alone. And I'll remain dead forever. You know, it's, it's easy to get into a debate that becomes polemical and use rhetoric. It's, it's another thing to actually think about the worldview that I am going to die. You know, there, there's going to be a day where I don't wake up. I don't get out of bed. I don't kiss my wife anymore. I don't get to see my wife's beautiful face anymore. I don't get to hold my children in my arms anymore. I'm going to die. I'm going to die soon. I'm going to die alone, and I, I'll remain dead forever. When I, when I drive up the 10 freeway here in Southern California, I look over at Forest Lawn. You know, it's, it's not too far from the headquarters here at RTB, Reasons to Believe. And I, I ask myself, if I were an atheist, how long will I be in that hole? I noticed, uh, by the way, on Father's Day, there was a lot happening over there at Forest Lawn. Mm. You know, we, we think about our parents. Those of us who have lost our parents, we think, well, they're, they've gone ahead of us. You know, um, I wish they were here. I wish I could talk to them. Well, that's the naturalist view. The Christian view is Christ died. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. Um, I think you could even put number five, and because he was raised, so will you. Because he died and was buried, and because he was raised and he appeared, you, you're going to die unless you live until the second coming. Uh, when you die, you'll be buried. Maybe you'll be cremated. But because he was raised, you're going to be raised. And because he appeared, you're going to appear with him. I, I think the resurrection is the most important message anybody could conceivably ever hear. Mm -hmm. It's the most important message. Uh, not all dead men stay dead. It is a dangerous idea. When I use the word dangerous, I'm thinking of in philosophy and in science, a paradigm shift. Darwin's idea was a dangerous idea uh, because it turned the paradigm upside down. I think, I think the resurrection turns the paradigm upside down. Now, you know, I'm, uh, I do a lot of talking on straight thinking, but I'm a pretty quiet, reflective person. I'm definitely an introvert. Um, you know, I, I need time by myself. Um, uh, it's easier for me to hug a book than hug a person. Mm. Um, but if everybody needs to hear this message, then I'm motivated. Mm -hmm. And when I talk about evangelism, I talk about apologetics. Th this is what people need to hear. I can't keep this message to myself. I have to share this with someone. So I, I think it should should motivate us. Now, let me let me pause a moment.
Dave, Joe, I want to talk a little bit about the resurrection here in terms of a major challenge, but I don't, I don't want to go too quickly that you don't get your point of view in here. No, I'm just tracking with you, and I appreciate it. I appreciate the fact that you uh, have identified these early statements uh, in Scripture uh, that give us um, creedal uh, statements that we can latch onto. They're uh, brief, yet uh, powerful, and they lay a, a good foundation for us to, to, to memorize and, and bear in mind. Okay, Dave? Uh, just continue, it's great stuff. Okay, let's, uh, now I want to present a major challenge that the secularists bring to religious people, to Christian people. That challenge is that religious people don't respond appropriately to religious claims. The, the skeptical charge is that believers are credulous. They believe things too easily. They don't exercise sufficient skepticism. The atheists say, look, when you're presented with an idea that somebody was raised from the dead or God exists, you should question it. You should doubt it. You should be suspicious. You should challenge it. And you should only accept it after you've gone through that, that skeptical point of view. So believers exercise insufficient skepticism. They don't they don't question, they don't doubt, they don't, they're not suspicious, they don't challenge things. They just believe them. They believe what they're told. Uh, so that that is a very strong criticism that Christian people, religious people overall, don't exercise uh, their intellectual duty. They just they just believe things. Uh, you know, they're told this happy story and uh, they just drink the Kool-Aid, hmm. which, by the way, drinking the Kool-Aid is is a metaphor to Jim Jones. Right. In 1978, Jim Jones in Guyana, um, you know, he had the, the People's Temple, um, a cult group and uh, the entire group committed suicide by drinking grape Kool-Aid uh, laced with cyanide. Mm. Some people drank it readily and other, other people had to have it poured down their throat. Well, again, you don't want to believe things too easily. I, I kind of agree with the skeptics. You, you do need to be, you need to be thoughtful. Even, even John says, you know, don't believe things too easily, too quickly. Uh, many false prophets have gone out into the world, so I, I, there is some of the skeptical challenge that I that I agree with. But uh, of course, I would say when it comes to atheism and secularism, question it, doubt it, be suspicious of it, challenge it. Mm -hmm. it doesn't just go for religion; it goes for non-religion as well. Exactly, I think there are there's there's certainly justifiable reasons to question. The conclusions of the atheist. That's right. That's exactly right. Just because somebody tells you, hey, you know, the, the God is a spaghetti monster God, you know, there's, you don't have to worry about any of that. Well, I don't know. 
maybe maybe you want to maybe there should be a equal opportunity skepticism of of each and every worldview. Now, I, I want to focus the the end of our podcast here, the last kind of uh, quarter of our podcast. Um, I want to challenge that secular idea, the secular idea, the skeptical idea that that the believers in Christianity believe things too easily, without question, without doubting, without adequate suspicion, and really don't challenge things. I want to introduce three Christian thinkers, three Christian leaders, three apostolic leaders, who I think were quite skeptical. Uh, I want to talk briefly about Thomas. I want to talk about James, the brother or half-brother of Jesus. And I want to talk about Saul, who becomes Paul. Let me begin with, with Thomas. Um, Thomas is one of the 12. He's, he's part of the uh, early disciples of Jesus. And according to the Gospels, uh, when Jesus appeared to the disciples, and he appeared to them in different places, different times, different groups, sometimes uh, within a within a, a building, other times out in the, the open, day, night, there were a variety of appearances of Jesus. But Thomas wasn't with the apostles, and of course, when the his his associates, his colleagues tell him that they've seen the Lord, he doesn't buy it. Uh, I think he exercises sufficient questioning, doubts it. He's rather suspicious. He challenges it. He says, look, uh, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm with you guys. And I've seen a lot of incredible things by, you know, the one we believe is the Messiah. But I also saw him die. And I'm not going to believe it until I can, you know, see the nail marks in his, in his, in his hands, in his wrists. Uh, I want to put my hand in his side. If, you know, that's what you say you saw, that's what I need to see. Well, that doesn't sound like easy believism. It, it kind of sounds like Thomas was questioning, doubting. He treated it in a rather suspicious way. He, he challenged, wh why couldn't he just say, hey, you know what? I, you guys say it happened. I trust you. I'll take it to the bank. He didn't do it. And then, of course, there's another appearance of Jesus. This time, Thomas is in the ranks. And Jesus, of course, knows what Thomas has said. Thomas, go ahead. Examine my the wounds in my hands. Put your hand forth into my side. Touch me and see. That, that doesn't sound like the insufficient skepticism that the skeptic suggest religious people have. Now, let me move to number two, which I think is even more extraordinary. Uh, James is, of course, uh, one of Mary and Joseph's sons. So James is in, in Jesus's family. Now, now, can you imagine growing up with Jesus as your older brother? You know, why can't you be more like Jesus? Uh, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough road to hoe. Uh, that, that's that's not easy, but but you know let's think about it in more particular terms. Uh, I think I'm being reasonable when I read through the Gospels and I discover 
seemingly, and you guys, you guys challenge me here if you think that I've misread it, but as I read through the Gospels, it seems that at some point, even the family of Jesus starts to have questions about him and about his public ministry and about who, th who he thinks they are. In fact, it even says that at some point, the family of Jesus went to take control over him. Now, I, I think the context here is very important. This is first century Israel. These are monotheists. People don't, human beings don't go around saying they're God. They don't say, I am. They don't say, you know, I and the Father, we are one. Um, human beings, Jewish human beings in the first century don't go around saying things like, uh, I'll forgive your sins. Mm -hmm. or I'm going to raise the dead, or I'm going to judge humanity. It, it seems to me that all of the miraculous things that Mary had seen, Mary, the mother of Jesus, that at some point her and Jesus's siblings, I'm, I'm assuming maybe Joseph had died by that time. I don't know. All we have is kind of tradition about some of those things. But it seems like the family starts to say, you know, maybe he's deluded. I don't know, you know, did they think Jesus, you know, was schizophrenic? Did they think he was bipolar? Did they think, you know, he's lost it? And now, now imagine being the sibling. Let me ask you this question, Joe and Dave. Have, have anybody in your family ever embarrassed you? You ever sure. been embarrassed by the actions of a person in your family? In fact, let me reverse it. Has your family ever been embarrassed by the actions of you? <laughs> I'm sure that's the case as well. <laughs> well, imagine, you know, here's James and here's his brother challenging the very religious leaders, the very foundation of Judaism, of being a Hebrew person. Uh, here's Jesus saying that the Old Testament scriptures, the Tanakh, the Torah, that they point to him. Imagine being in that context. What kind of heat was the family taking? You know, um, I, I remember uh, when my brother committed suicide, um, I felt very embarrassed. I, I, I felt embarrassed that the people in the neighborhood knew that my brother had taken his life, that our, you know, the inside story of our family was in the newspaper. Um, you know, looking back on it, I wish I were more mature. I wish I could have extended more in empathy to my brother. I wish I could have been more supportive of him. Uh, I wish I could have told him, um, you know, there's a, there's a reason to have hope. Well, I was, I was a teenager and I was occupied with my own life, but I was occupied with what people thought of me. Well, let me shift back to Jesus. What kind of heat was James taking? He wasn't a believer. He may have thought his brother was mentally ill. Uh, what did it take for James to leave his skepticism? Uh, I could I tell you, I think I think James had lots of questions, lots of doubts. I think he was very suspicious and he challenged the claims that his brother was making. But then then he had an experience with the Lord. He encountered the Lord. And James moved from being embarrassed 
uh, being put off by the actions of his brother, becoming an apostolic leader in, in early Christianity. Right. Acts, Acts 15, he seems to have some kind of authority in the church. You know, uh, I, had, I hadn't really thought about this before, but when an individual within a family is behaving irrationally, a lot of pressure from people outside the family will be on the family to take control of this one who is misbehaving. That's right. I never really thought about that before, how much pressure there would have been from friends and relatives, not those who reacted to Jesus, those who didn't immediately believe in him, now are putting pressure on the family to, to quiet this guy down. I think it had to be that way. I, I think people thought, I, you know, you can't say anything to Jesus, but I can go to his family and say, why aren't you doing something about this? Don't you realize he's challenging the very essence of what it means to be a, a Jewish monotheist? Um, I, I think I think the issues relating to uh, Jesus and his family are very critical. Mm. So was James, he wasn't, he wasn't skeptical enough i think he was filled with skepticism mm -hmm. i think he was embarrassed by all of this i think he probably wished it go away and then he had an encounter with the lord no longer his brother it's now the messiah the son of god now a third one of course is saul paul um something i want to say here uh, you know we uh we ridicule uh, Muslims who kill people in the name of God. We call them jihadists. Well, Paul is a rabbi. Um, some, some suggest if he had not converted to Christianity, he might have gone down as one of the great rabbis of that period, maybe, maybe similar to people like Gamaliel. So here's Paul. He's trained in Judaism, and he sees this 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 Jewish sect known as the Nazarene cult. And he thinks, you know, this is this is Jim Jones. This is David Koresh. They're they're infecting Judaism. They're misrepresenting Judaism. Uh, I got to put a stop to this. I got to confront it. Uh, they may need to be arrested, maybe even executed. Uh, that's what that's what Saul thought. Now, again, thinking back to the charge, did he question it? Was Paul doubtful about the sect of the Nazarene? Was he suspicious? Did he challenge it? Well, he challenged it to the point of essentially arranging uh, persecution. Now, I don't know what that did to Paul's psyche. I don't, I don't know what Paul's... Uh, you know, uh, he, he talks about things that are bothering him. Uh, there are things that he struggled with, you know, the thorn in the flesh. I don't know. What is it? An eyesight problem? We, we don't exactly know. But I, I wonder how often he was tempted to say, wow, uh, I actually allowed the Lord's lambs that were dear to the Lord to be killed. You know, Paul had to believe the gospel for himself. Paul had to believe the things he was writing in Galatians and Romans because he was a jihadist. 
So did did Paul sufficiently question these things? I think so. In fact, let me introduce you to the patron saint of skepticism. His name is Saint David Hume. He's the patron saint of skepticism, dates 1711 to 1776. He's really considered one of the foremost critics of the claim of miracles, David Hume, the Scottish philosopher. Now, let, let me bring back Stephen Davis. Davis says, he summarizes Hume's major objection to claims about, of the miraculous. Davis says, Hume's main complaint is that no purported miracle that he knows about has been supported by the testimony of a sufficient number of people of unquestionable good sense, education, learning, and integrity. A sufficient number of people of unquestioned good sense, education, learning, and integrity. Well, I think the skeptical converts to Christianity do pretty well. Thomas, James, Paul, they seem to possess pretty keen intellects. They seem to be educated, at least in the sense of uh, knowing how to think through various issues. And they seem to have moral qualities that make them credible witnesses. So all three came to believe in the resurrection after initially doubting or rejecting it. And again, I mean, it's one thing for Joe and Dave and Ken, you know, we, we might be more suspicious or doubtful or question, but think of Thomas, James, and Saul. I mean, they're, they're right there at the heart. They're right there at the beginning. They're, you know, central. So two of the central apostolic leaders of prim primitive Christianity James and Paul were converts from what I would call extreme skepticism. Now, of course, you know, you start thinking about these kinds of things, the inevitability of death, angst, desperation, despair. Um, I give a quote here by Pascal. He says, all men are not able to fight against death as men are not able to fight against death, misery, and ignorance. They have taken it into their heads in order to be happy, not to think of them at all. You know, I, I actually have a little bit of sympathy on people who don't want to philosophize. Philosophy is hard. The questions are difficult. Uh, they, they cause anxiety. Um, there are lots of claims being made. How do I sort through all of these things? Maybe a person says, hey, I, you know, I just do my best, have a good life, let it go, you know, from there. But let me let me simply summarize here because our time is is really up. Um, you know, given the inevitability of death, um, the fact that Christianity gives us hope is critical. And you know, I I think that as we talk about the resurrection. I think we need to speak in those real terms that uh, there's good reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and, and look at the worldview. So uh, Joe and Dave, I'm going to stop there. I uh, just close with a, a quote from the British physicist and priest John Polkinghorne. He says, for the religious believer, that is for the Christian theist, the last word lies not with death. I might add, not with 
uh, entropy, the last word is, rests with God, mm -hmm. with Christ. Mm -hmm. I, I've written about this in a number mm -hmm. of my books, without a doubt, Seven Truths That Changed the World, Christianity Cross-Examined. Uh, I also referenced Humans 2.0 by Fuzz and myself. Mm -hmm. some, some study tools that are out there. Yeah. Great. What do you say? What do you say to the to the skeptic or the atheist who says, "Okay, um, God uh, appeared to Thomas and showed him his wounds. Uh, God appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, and he had an encounter there that he couldn't deny. So I'm waiting for God to do that for me." Mm. Well, um, I, I think I would say that, uh, you know, when you, when you are to examine things, uh, you, you may not have that privileged experience. But because you don't personally have that privileged experience doesn't mean that other people haven't. Um, and you know, if you've, if you've got people of good, I mean, I think, I think, I think Thomas and James and Paul satisfy uh, David Hume's skepticism. Right. Shouldn't that be enough for your skeptical friend? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Good, good point. Right. Great stuff. Well, thank you for your thoughts, Ken. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will agree that uh, these are very equipping, they're helpful as we engage people in our lives who are skeptical of the Christian faith. We can leave them with the ultimate hope. Uh, and I like that last word. Uh, the last word lies not with death or entropy, but with God. So thank you for that. All right, uh, here are a couple of comments that have come in and we sure appreciate hearing from people who are reading your books, Ken, and uh, reading your blogs and listening to the podcast. Here's one from Meester from Twitter. Ken, I'm a regular listener and big fan of your podcast. Keep up the great work. Uh, here's another one from uh, a Twitter person, Wes Terry. I have always been helped by your books. You communicate big ideas with clarity and simplicity. And finally, another one from Twitter, uh, Nate Brantley says, thank you for your books. There are still more that I would like to read from your collection. All right. Well, Ken, I guess that's encouragement to keep, keep writing. Amen. <laughs> thank you for those uh, comments. We sure appreciate them. And thanks for listening to the podcast. And be sure to check out Ken's blog as well, reflectionsbyken.wordpress.com. Uh, that comes out every couple of weeks. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this podcast. Uh, you can reach Ken via his Twitter handle, and many of you have, but here it is again, at RTB underscore case samples. Don't miss any episodes of Straight Thinking. You can subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify, and you'll get an episode delivered to you each week. For Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. 
To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.